to the American Vandal from the Center for Mark Twain Studies at Elmira College. I want to acknowledge up front that this bonus episode is a little more inside baseball than what you have become accustomed to from us. In just a few days, we'll be launching the second season with a conversation about the myths of Reconstruction in light of recent events at the Capitol. But if you're interested in what we do here at the Center for Mark Twain Studies, how our institution came to be, and if you're considering applying for a Quarry Farm Fellowship, this episode is for you. It was recorded in the library at Quarry Farm, the property where Samuel Clemens and his family spent 20-some summers, and where Mark Twain wrote Adventures of Huckleberry Finn, Adventures of Tom Sawyer, Life on the Mississippi, and dozens of other novels, travel books, short stories, speeches, and plays. The conversation you're hearing includes Dr. Joe Lemack, an Elmira native who served Elmira College in several faculty and administrative roles before being appointed director of the Center for Mark Twain Studies at the beginning of 2016. Steve Webb, who has been caretaker at Quarry Farm since late 2013, overseeing the maintenance of the property as well as serving as our liaison with visiting scholars, community members, and school groups. And myself, Matt Siebel. Since the summer of 2015, I have been the center's resident scholar and editor-in-chief of MarkTwainStudies.org, as well as assistant professor of American Literature and Mark Twain Studies at Elmira College. We hope you enjoy our conversation. Now I'm uh, here in the library at Quarry Farm uh, with Joe Lamack and Steve Webb. And we have just recently announced the 2021 class of Quarry Farm Fellows. This is an exciting uh, time in our calendar uh, as we get to look forward to some of the uh, people that we'll be meeting, old friends that we'll be seeing again uh, over the course of the coming year, uh, and have spent recent weeks uh, sort of getting excited about the projects that they're working on. Uh, the Quarry Farm Fellows are a class of often about a dozen scholars, artists, creative writers who come to Quarry Farm for periods of between two and four weeks uh, over the course of each year. And I want to, to start today by asking the director of the Center for Mark Twain Studies, Joe Lamack, what we are looking for mm. when we get a new stack of applications <laughs> for the Quarry Farm Fellowship. Uh, sure, uh, that's, that's a great question. Um, I think I'd like to preface it by first saying that I think when you say we, you're meaning the center, and you mean, you know, Matt, you and myself. But there's a, a quarry farm, there's a whole entire selection committee right. that also decides. Um, recently, or not recently, but maybe three years ago, we formalized the process where uh, we have a, a selection committee of, I think right now, nine people. We have a, an ex-officio. We have the editor of the Mark Twain Annual. We have the editor of Mark Twain Journal on that, on that committee. So what it is is that, you know, uh, applications are sent to me and then uh, I gather them, I collate them, and then I send them back out. And pretty quickly, you know, we, uh, we get reactions back. And I think for each member of the committee, uh, I think they're looking for perhaps different things um, because, you know, people are ranked differently. 
and then we kind of tabulate all the scores and then the people who get the highest scores are rewarded the fellowships and i think that represents the adaptability of the fellowship um, and one thing that it says on our website is that you know twain himself was interested in a lot of different things so it's really kind of hard to kind of pigeonhole what one fellow is exactly working on i think as director something that i'm looking for and something that i've been open and publicly declaring is that I want to increase the number of applications to increase the competition for fellowships. And then, of course, increase the quality of the scholarship that's produced here at Quarry Farm. And I think that's something that's, that's vital for our mission. The better kind of projects, more interesting kind of projects that we get here at Quarry Farm, the more that the utility of the house becomes, becomes more useful. But besides from that, what I'm personally looking for is maybe something that perhaps, you know, my colleagues, you know, maybe that Bang Click and Joe B. Fulton might not be looking for. I'd like to see something that's related to Elmira, maybe. Mm-hmm. I'd like to see something that, as director, that's something that's maybe pragmatic for the center. For example, you know, we have someone who specializes in masonry, who's going to be looking at the steps, and but not, but of course, I myself can't just get that person, you know, into a fellowship, but right. other people too have to kind of collate to get it back in. Right. So you have to, in many cases, the, the artists, the craftsmen the, that do apply for these fellowships with some regularity, right, they, you know, their application needs to make clear how this is going to contribute to the long-term vitality of Twain studies, right? Absolutely. very broadly conceived. And I think that's a good time to ask a question that I know all of us get asked all the time to the point that it may even be kind of nauseating right but which the fact that we get asked that often means that it's it's something that that people are are curious about is how did this arrangement where we have a house that used to be part of mark twain's extended family or this property where he wrote uh, many of his most famous works how did it get designated as a place of scholarship as opposed to a museum or an archive uh, or another kind of more conventional Mm -hmm. historical site. I think we have to give credit to uh, the family for that. Twain used to come here in his day to sort of escape because he loved being famous. He loved living in Hartford and being the center of attention throwing big dinners and having famous people over, but he never got any work done there. He needed to come here and sort of quietly disappear from that and still be around his family. Because the house stayed in the family all the way until the early 80s, it stayed a lot like it was back in Twain's time, and they wanted to keep it that way. Uh, They thought it was much more appropriate to have writers and artists and creative people and scholars come up here and work rather than it turn into some sort of roadside museum. I think it was brilliant and uh, you know that's why I'm here. So. <laughs> I think that's a, it's such a fantastic point and it's a, one of the things that I find so interesting about this place and its mission is that the spirit of why Twain enjoyed coming here, right? That he got so much work done, that there was something about this place that was really conducive to his writing. 
that we are sort of recycling that down through the generations so that now there's scholars coming here who are having that same experience of course sort of retreating from the world and throwing themselves into their uh, intellectual and inter artistic pursuits. With a great deal of foresight, the Langdon family recognized that. Uh, and uh, Joe, maybe you could talk a little bit about the actual legal agreement. Yeah. Oh, I that, was, I was going to bring yeah. that up um, because like I know we're talking these sort of lofty high ideals. Yeah. But the Langdons, you know, being savvy businessmen all along, um, were very pragmatic when they gave uh, this gift to uh, officially Amara College, right? The Center for Mark Twain Studies is officially part of Amara College. Really, this mythical document called the Four-Party Agreement. December 31st, 1982, it was signed. Jervis B. Langdon Jr., the great-grand-nephew of Mark Twain, um, and the great-grandson of Jervis, the first Jervis Langdon, had this agreement in which he would give it to Elmira College only if it was used as a scholarly retreat for writers and actually uses the word like Center for Mark Twain Studies in the document. Um, so we are officially bound by that agreement. If for some reason we don't follow those rules, in other words, if we, if Elmira College turns this place into, as Steve calls it, a roadside museum, Elmira College loses control of Quarry Farm. Um, so while we might say, you know, we want to support Mark Twain scholars, the Langdon family ensured that this place would be uh, just for Mark Twain scholars. Right. And also, I'd like to point out that also in the four-party agreement, it made us uh, Steve's job. Right. <laughs> that in it, that there would always be a caretaker here on site to take care of it. And also, within the, within the agreement itself, it says the furniture needs to stay here, right? It needs to stay relatively the same as when it was given to the college. There is this kind of incredible foresight associated Absolutely. with that document. And I remember the first time I read it just a couple of years ago, one of the things that the Langdon family also says is that it's for scholarship on Mark Twain, and I believe they, they call it his circle or his yeah. world, and they designate yeah. a series of authors uh, and ideas associated with Mark Twain's work and his life uh, that they consider to be part of Twain studies, yeah, right? And right. so, you know, they had the great foresight to not only recognize that there would be a, a need for uh, a place for Twain scholarship, but also that Twain's influence and legacy was going to be tied to how he intersected with so much else in the 19th century. They had the the awareness and the, the impulse to think of Twain studies as a sort of broadly conceived and mm -hmm. encompassing field. Uh, and I think that's, that's a great boon to us that that is written in the sort of mandate by which our, our from which our mission emerges. And it's also, I think, what makes the fellowship, Quarry Farm Fellowship, so special. And I'm not just saying that because, you know, I'm involved with this, but they have the opportunity to stay here at Quarry Farm, where it kind of feels like that, that movie, Night in a Museum, where you're kind of surrounded by these 19th century, you know, all this furniture and this, you know, wonderful, you know, interior architecture. Um, and the setting itself is beautiful, looking over the Shemung Valley, but at the same time, it feels like a home. There's a warmth to the place. You know, this is a, it's a living, breathing house. That idea of a living, breathing house is a great opportunity to bring in Steve Webb, who I know has thought a lot about the sort of oral history of Quarry Farm, <laughs> the, the, you know, the myths associated with Quarry Farm. 
we've all now encountered the sort of ghosts of Quarry Farm, either uh, you know via our own habitation here or through the stories that scholars tell. And so, as somebody who's now uh, you know been living on the property for about six years, seven years, seven years, uh-huh. what are some of your favorite sort of memories having to do with the the idiosyncrasies of this house? <laughs> Jeez, it's hard to know where to start. I, I think. Um, <laughs> You know, the most common question I get asked is, are there ghosts? Are there anything like that? And um, I think for me, it's it's a feel as far as like, and I, I knew this before I was even employed here. I had a friend that lived on the property and I would come up and visit and I was like, this place just feels good. I think that was probably here before Twain and it's probably why he uh, felt himself drawn to it so much. It's a noisy house. It's a creaky house. There, there's a lot of life in it. For me now, I'm, I'm used to it. You know, when I leave for a few days, I pretty much just want to come back here. It's nothing, you know, nothing but good as far as the feel. Not that Elmira is a booming metropolis, right? Mm-hmm. But there is definitely, you know, even for somebody who lives in, in downtown Elmira, Right when you come up the hill, there is a there is a decided change in mm-hmm. just the ambient noise, yeah. right? Yeah. The ambient light. Even though we can see the places that we live and work <laughs> from where we from the front porch, and there is still something decidedly remote. Yeah. Um, and I know that that was something that Twain took advantage of, right? Yeah. Walking down into town to meet friends, to drink, to get his exercise, right? But then also being able to come back to this place that felt very isolated yeah it's interesting because it and a lot of people say this like don't you go crazy way out there and it's like it's actually not that Mm -hmm. far it's just a couple Mm -hmm. miles from town but it it feels like you're out there and my answer is no I don't go crazy (laughs) I go crazy when I leave here (laughs) that's where I want to stay but yeah it's there is something special about it and especially when you summertime when you sit out on that porch and you can see the city lights down there, and uh, but it, it it's just a whole it's its own world. It yeah. is it is very unique. Something that you recognize right away, and I, I can see it every time a scholar arrives. I see it on their face. You're like, whoa, this is yeah. oh, this is it, you know. And and yeah. it's like this light that goes on, and and they they still I can tell feel like this is almost too good to be true to have this. I get, I get all this. I, I get to live like a 19th century millionaire for a couple of weeks. That's right. right? Yeah. <laughs> and I think that, I mean, that raises a very important question and one that we want to make sure we make people aware of, right? With this mission in mind, right, that we want scholars and writers who come here to have the experience that uh, that Twain had, inspiration, productivity, right? Uh, what are some of the things that have been done in recent years to sort of make that more possible for them in the context of the 21st century? Well, as I mentioned before, I think the the biggest thing um, was the formalization of the Quarry Farm Fellowship process. I think that was super important just to keep things above board. And also, to your credit, Matt, the promotion of the website, right, where we can actually promote the fellowships. Before, you know, before the website, it was just kind of a insider's club of who knew what Quarry Farm was. But now we're advertising it in a lot of different, you know, a lot of different venues. When it comes to the preservation of the home, we've learned a lot about 
what preservation architects do in the last couple of years. Um, and one thing that we just acquired um, was a historic structure report, which is a very comprehensive, almost exhaustive document of the current conditions of the, first of all, an architectural history of the house, of what it was in 1868 when the first Jervis Langdon bought it, what were the additions through the years, um, looking at old tax records, pictures, county lines, also a, a, a conditions assessment from, I mean, soup to nuts, like every single window, every single floor, basement, attic, you name it. And then a strategic plan of going forward of what we should do, what are the top priorities for preserving the house as we go forward. The top one is that we need to work on a fire suppression system, which we're hopefully installing in the next couple of weeks here. As you mentioned, the remoteness, having a fire truck come up the East Hill would be something I don't want to see. It'd be, it'd be a disaster pretty quick. But then for also, and maybe, you know, Matt, you can speak about this a little bit more, is also maybe the comfort for the scholars itself. You know, using this as well, it's a 19th century home, and it's wonderful to tell, you know, I'm going to live like a 19th century millionaire, as you said. This is also a workspace for the 21st century. So we've installed a business-grade Wi-Fi. We've converted this. We're in the library now to, a, you know, bigger tables and workspaces. We're also currently going to hopefully engage an interior designer to kind of rethink the second floor of the upstairs. And upstairs, and we haven't really mentioned yet, is the, the resources upstairs for scholars. Yeah, the, one of the things that we've taken great pains in the last couple of years to do is organize the books at Quarry Farm and to the best of our ability, create a working library that has a sort of comprehensive set of primary and secondary sources related to Twain, and then even a set of auxiliary sources about other relevant fields from the 19th century. I know when I first came here as a fellow myself, now more than five years ago, there was always a nice set of resources here but they had not been fully cataloged. We didn't have a, a searchable database. Finding all of what was here was not necessarily uh, incredibly convenient. That has changed dramatically in the last five years. Is not only have we cataloged and organized all the shelves, but we've also started to take a more considered approach to the development of the collection so that there are new resources being added all the time that are the sort of most relevant books being published on Twain and other important works being you know, published in American history, literary theory, other fields that we think scholars uh, will, will draw upon when they're here. It's also important to mention that when scholars receive Quarry Farm Fellowships, they also get full access to the Elmira College uh, Library, to uh, the resources in the Mark Twain Archive at Elmira College, which are yeah, has a, a far more complete and vast collection of Twain-related primary and secondary sources, and even get access to the archives at Cornell, correct? Yeah, and uh, Shimlong County Historical Society. And the Shimlong County Historical Society, right. So Quarry Farm Fellows have the opportunity to use a lot of resources, not only 
inside the house itself, but in the community. As Joe said, one of the things that we're excited about over the last few years is the increasing amount of scholarship that's being done, both by those of us here at the center, but also by a lot of uh, scholars really across the country and throughout the world exploring not just Mark Twain, but Mark Twain's various communities, including Elmira. For the people who are doing that kind of work, we can all testify that there are still sort of untapped archives here in in Elmira, in the Southern Tier, in Ithaca, right, where there are resources that uh, that need to sort of be plumbed and explored. To take it back a little, the just the furniture itself, we've we've improved that a lot by adding some modern things that are just more comfortable because. 19th century furniture is beautiful to look at, but it is not fun to sit in. <laughs> um, it's not great. With furniture and Wi-Fi, as far as just the day-to-day -day comfort of the scholar, that, that has improved a lot in the last few years as yeah. well. These rooms are more functional all yeah. the time. Yeah. Yeah. Well, the ultimate plan is to have functional rooms. For example, the downstairs, we're here in the library, and this will be kind of a workspace. And the kitchen, of course, is a, is a functional room, right? You can make your coffee, cook your bacon, yeah. you know, eat at the same exact table where Twain had his breakfast every morning. But then we'll have uh, the parlor and the dining room will be more like museum spaces. For some reason, there's not many pictures of Quarry Farm inside. If anyone has any kind of camera, they're taking pictures of the porch and the view, right? right? Why wouldn't you not, right? right? Yeah. I mean, that's what everyone's drawn to. And we only really have, there's only there's only a couple really dark pictures of the dining room, and we have one good picture of the parlor. And so we're going to try and reconstruct the parlor. The parlor is actually pretty close to what it yeah, is now. And not and just doing a couple tweaks, we can actually make it look like when Twain was here right. and really make it a real kind of museum piece. Yeah. When it just says we don't have pictures, right? We don't have pictures from Twain's era from right. Twain's era yeah so no, no, not even that yeah just in general right even from the early 20th century everyone's right. taking pictures I can't think of yeah. anything that's inside the house even from like the 50s or the 20s no everyone's taking pictures everyone's hanging out on the porch yeah yeah and for good reason yeah there's we have you know so many pictures of the porch you name it but when it comes to actually you know taking pictures of a slice of daily life of what's inside the house at Quarry Farm we're just guessing. And of course, you know, we can look at tax records and, and plans and tax codes and you know things like that to figure out when, when the additions occurred, but we don't know where, how the furniture was actually arranged right. or things like that. What little we do know sometimes is based on hearsay, Absolutely. oral history. We know that a lot when the, the Langdon's mansion in Elmira was knocked down uh, or sold, some of the furniture from there came up yep. here, and so it's hard to trace what was originally part of the Langdon collection in their primary residence and what was part of the Crane collection That's right. up here. Mm -hmm. yeah. Well, we've had um, one well 19th century furniture expert, yeah. a man named Walter Ritchie Jr., came in and really helped us catalog all the furniture, and he really kind of did a good job of figuring out what came what, just based on the dates of when things were made. There, there's one story that kind of filtered down through oral history that there was a desk uh, that's in the parlor that we said that roughing, we always said roughing it was written there. Yeah. 
And then, you know, Walter kind of said, well, that's not true because this was made a year after, you know, roughing it was published. <laughs> and we're still upset with Walter. About that. <laughs> we might tell that story every yeah, once in a I while. Still, but... you, know, you never let the truth uh, in the way of a good story. <laughs> but it's, it's those kind of things where, you know, we're learning much more about the house, but it's really from these outside scholars coming in and, you know, using their own specialties and talents. We've been emphasizing the interdisciplinarity of the Corey Fung Fellowships and our desire to attract fellows that have a range of disciplinary specialties, backgrounds, degrees. But we should also point out that the the staff of the Center for Mark Twain Studies is interdisciplinary, right? <laughs> that uh, neither Steve nor Joe comes from a traditional uh, literary background, right? Joe has a, a PhD in classics. Steve was for a long time a professional musician. And so for both of you, when you joined the Center for Mark Twain Studies staff, you were far from experts on Twain, right? <laughs> And so I think one of the things that I wanted to ask you, sort of now that you've been in your roles for five years and sort of living and breathing Twain in a way that very few people ever have the, uh, the opportunity or some might say the fate uh, to do, what has most sort of surprised you about Twain himself, his legacy, right? the the field of Twain studies that you're now, you know, very much a part of and embedded of. Even even if, as I know both of you do, try to avoid presenting yourselves in the role of scholars, right? Because you see your uh, your contributions uh, differently. You're nonetheless listening to Twain scholarship on the regular, reading it, interacting with, having conversations with about it, right? So I, I was curious to get a sense of what has sort of most stuck with you about the peculiarities of this community and this field as people who didn't come to it right, in the traditional path, right? Mm -hmm. Though maybe more like I did, getting a PhD in English, right? Yeah. Um, well, I guess I, at this point, sometimes I call, I'm an accidental hacky uh, Twain scholar because I see every lecture that's up here and even a lot of the scholars themselves don't see every single lecture that comes through. So it's it's kind of amazing. But I guess the first thing would be just the depth and wealth of material. Like there is, it is endless. I mean, he wrote and wrote and wrote. And when he wasn't writing, he was reading and he had interests in everything and was commenting on everything and before this job you of course everyone's heard of Mark Twain everyone hears it and you hear little cute quotes here and there but to realize like there is a quote for everything another thing is like I think I actually we would have been friends like, <laughs> I like uh you know obviously humorist obviously funny but I mean I think it's like and I've heard the comparison to people like John Stewart or Trevor Noah since then, but it's like, these are the people I listen to now. And I think that he would be the guy that I would be most interested in hearing what he had to think about modern day events, you know? I mean, even though I, I, you know, my own background often compels me to push back against the speculative 
well, you know, what would Twain think of this? What would Twain say? You know, and the, we, we all know those are the questions that we get asked, right? Yeah, right. At every lecture, right? At every tour, every time a school group comes up here, any, you know, any interaction with the general public, somebody's going to ask, you know, what would Mark Twain think of Donald Trump, right? right? What would Mark Twain have thought about, you know, the contemporary social media, right? That these these questions are, are a bombardment, uh-huh. in part because Twain has this resilient reputation as a sort of social commentator right? mm-hmm. that goes back, you know, into the... Uh, the mid 19th century, and so yeah, I do think it's almost inevitable, even if you try to resist it, <laughs> to see the world. Uh, you know, if we, if you're living as all three of us are with Twain sort of on the brain, right? Yeah. It's impossible not to ask those questions, like, mm-hmm. you know, how would he see what I'm seeing? Yeah, right? and I think our depth of understanding of him in a way allows it like a lot of times when people ask me and they're looking for like more of a norman rockwell answer Mm -hmm. that's the part that annoys me more and so you can't paint this norman rockwell picture and that that's where i push back because i'm like no it's not it's not all like tom sawyer painting the fence yeah like there's much more i was i'm so glad you brought that up because that's certainly something that we've all talked about joe and i have sort of actively tried to sort of curate our approach to the website to the lecture series to uh the programming of the center to resist But also to acknowledge there is a kind of mythic twain that got created in the 20th century, especially the early 20th century. And we can blame, you know, Norman Rockwell and Paul Newman and, uh, you know, T.S. Eliot and Ernest Hemingway. But part of the struggle that we have as, uh, as part of the center today is how do we break open that myth? That for, you know, maybe not as much for scholars, but certainly for the general public and oftentimes for students and teachers and other constituencies who we want to have a relationship with the center and have a relationship with Twain's work, it's hard to get them away from Tom Sawyer and Huck Finn, not that there's anything wrong with interest in those novels, and recognize what Steve's talking about, right, this vast dynamic oeuvre of work, both private and public writings, in which, as it becomes increasingly searchable, it really is. Almost a day doesn't go by where you can't sort of put in, you know, coup attempt and find Twain talking about something that's relevant. You guys are kind of saying exactly kind of the answer that I would have said, or I'm going to say, from someone who was born and raised here in Elmira. I think another culprit of, you know, perpetuating that myth is also the Elmira Chamber of Commerce. They don't necessarily want to talk about the sophistication of Twain. It's very kind of like, well, he's buried here, and it kind of stops. And the one thing that kind of quickly struck me to kind of use Anne Ryan's phrase is cosmopolitan Twain, like how cosmopolitan he was. I remember being an undergrad and kind of reading through Huck Finn and everyone's talking about the raft rapture. And, you know, everything is kind of focused on the Mississippi. And that's mm-hmm. kind of just all Twain is, right? Yeah. Very quickly, you see that this guy is so much more than that. This mm-hmm. is a person who is extremely educated and likes people who are educated. Yeah. Mm-hmm. 
And so you're right, this kind of this myth that is kind of created in the 40s and 50s, which I kind of grew up with here in Elmira, um, it was kind of really enlightening to see that this is a person who was not that at all. Um, And you're right, we are trying to kind of go against that. And another thing that I've learned, and something that I I think this, and I've said this quite a bit publicly, is that the city of Elmira does not do is really recognize the contribution of the Langdon family. The Langdon family seems to be a footnote when it comes to Elmira history. Again, the driving force is that Twain is buried here. Like I think our the motto is the place where Twain remains right. or something like that. <laughs> yeah. You know, this contribution of this Langdon family, of Jervis Langdon, this rich, wealthy man that Twain must have been looking up to as a role model. Abolitionist, right, as you call philanthrocapitalist, man. Yeah. You know, that must have been such an eye-opening experience. But these are Elmira folks that I think the city of Elmira could do much better at promoting yeah i think that's undoubtedly the thing that has sort of particularly the last few years the longer i've been here i've now lived in elmira for five years the longer i've been here the more the the sort of untold history of elmira Mm -hmm. has just become a fascination and obviously you know we made a podcast about it it's called the gospel of revolt but that's really only scratching the surface. Absolutely. Right? There's you know, the, the, the extended Langdon family, the Divins, the Gillettes, the Coles. Yeah. There's another one I just learned the other day, the Spaldings. Right, yeah. Right. And, and Clara was named after one of the Spaldings. Clara was named yeah. after Clara Spaulding, who was yeah. Livy's uh, you know, best friend growing yeah. up. Particularly in recent years, the, the thing that I keep coming back to is that this place had such a deep and powerful effect on his work. Mm -hmm. Um, And it goes beyond just giving him a retreat to write at and, uh, you know, obviously giving him some, uh, you know, wealth and extended family. Being here in those particular years would have given him access to a kind of strangely cosmopolitan world. A lot of interracial mixing, Mm -hmm. a lot of first wave feminism, Mm -hmm. a very progressive and idiosyncratic religious culture, a sort of new ideas around higher education and even secondary education, forms of philanthrocapitalism and poverty relief, even even prison reform, right? Yeah. Like that all of these things were happening yeah. here during the years he was in in residence. And a lot of those things really weren't happening in the far more right. metropolitan right. and you know the places that we would expect progressivism to be sort of taking root mm-hmm. oftentimes we're you know years behind mm-hmm. what was happening in small town elmira mm-hmm. in the late 19th century thomas k beecher is living a mile away about in a cottage from mm-hmm. from where we're sitting right now yeah. rachel gleason who delivers maybe all three daughters, but definitely the last two daughters here at Quarry Farm mm-hmm. is one of the first w- women medical doctors in like New York State. Yeah. Um, you know, Twain says like something like, you know, if there's anything wrong with my wife, Rachel Gleason is going to take care yeah. of her. Yeah. Um, and they run the water cure. That's probably even half a mile. That was where we're sitting right now. Yeah. So like to say that, you know, that, um, that Quarry Farm is kind of as, as you kind of pointed out in your podcast, Matt, you know, in sort of this 40s and 50s backwater sticks, this East Hill is a pretty hopping place. Yeah. I mean, it's a pretty cultured place. You're really thinking of really kind of advanced progressive ideas. Yeah, 
Absolutely. Yeah. yeah, just to line up. Just perfect timing, really. Just yeah. The timing of everything. Yeah. yeah. Some, this is just something I think about. I don't know how true it is, but growing up is poor as Twain grew up. Mm-hmm. And then I think when you grow up that poor, often the rich are viewed as sort of the enemy. You know, yeah. even though you want to be them, you want to acquire the money. Yeah. They can't be good if they're rich. Right. And then to be in in this family, in what's your term? Philanthropic capitalism? Yeah. That must have been just hugely eye-opening, you know? Mm-hmm. It, it, he, he even says as much, as much in his autobiography, right, that his patience for the wealthy would not have been what it was <laughs> were it not for Jervis Langdon. Mm-hmm. Right. Don't, don't get me wrong. He remains very critical of sure. the affluent class, particularly in the United States. But he has a whole different look on the possibilities of a capitalist economic system because Jervis Langdon is one of the best men he's ever met. Right. Right. Uh, Who's also, as you as you've told me, Matt, monopolistically buying up all the railroads yeah. around, all the businesses, so putting yeah. people out of jobs. So yeah. back here in Elmira, we can have this wonderful kind of yeah. 19th century progressive, like it's yeah. really a- affected the Elmira landscape, Elmira Free Academy. You know, as you said, reform uh, in the prisons, the park church, this cathedral, right, in the middle of downtown, right? Yeah. Pretty much all, Elmira Female College, our employer, yeah. Yeah. right? Jervis Langdon is on the first board of trustees. Totally affects the Elmira city landscape yeah it's trying to right. reconcile ourselves to the sort of success of philanthropic capitalism during their time in this specific place and the failures of philanthropic capitalism yeah. all around us in our time <laughs> right yeah. uh around the world right and so that i, I think is is certainly something that's a a strain in my own work and and a a healthy one created by living here Mm -hmm. is thinking about okay so why did the myths and ambitions and and ideologies associated with capitalism survive when so so many of its results were socially destructive Mm -hmm. well i mean part is that there there are also examples of it being incredibly Mm -hmm. effective right and bringing about more equality providing opportunity actually liberating people and that I can't help but see that that was happening here. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, right. And there has to be something said about also, I think, individual personalities, as you mentioned, Jervis Langdon. And I think another one for Twain, and I think that's something, you know, to bring it back to sort of the fellowships. And Steve has written about this, so he can talk about this more. But I think the person that really encapsulates the house mm-hmm. is not Mark Twain, but his sister in law, Susan Crane. Twain keeps on saying all the time, like, she's pretty much the nicest person in the world. You know, people say, is the house haunted, right? And again, I'm, I'm kind of stealing from Steve's article mm-hmm. that he wrote. It's Susan Crane, the ghost of the house, if there's anything. Right. If, if there's if there's any kind of spirit or any kind of feeling or aura, which I think there kind of is. Like sometimes people yeah. walk away and say there's a kind of a special feeling. It's got to be because of her. Yeah, I think she was just a, sort of an all-understanding kind of character, it seems like. You know, from what you read, there's no one in the history of words that have said a bad thing about her. Yeah. Yeah. I, you know, yeah. Like, yeah. yeah. She's kind of the center, and, and even Twain's wife, Livy, you know, they all gravitated toward her. And yeah. She was devoutly religious, and Twain would consistently try to talk her out of it, and she yeah. just laughed it off and just always supported him wholeheartedly and supported the whole family. 
you know, I think she's the reason he had the study up on the hill right. and all of that. And so she was kind of just the center of the family. The, the point that, Twa- that Steve alludes to is so great. Like, you get the feeling that there are probably very few more different people than Sam Clemens and Susan Crane. Personality, right. in terms of their values, in terms of their their temperaments, like in terms of their backgrounds, like these are really, really different people mm-hmm. who have a tremendous amount of respect for one another, a clearly very loving relationship for in-laws, particularly the saintly Susan side, right? She knows what's good for him, Mm -hmm. right? And she puts up with his bullshit (laughs) pretty much in perpetuity Mm -hmm. and is kind of, and he recognizes that often. Even when he doesn't know what's good for him, she knows what's good for him. And even when he's pissed her off, she does the things that she knows will be good for him. There, there's a, a real reason to, to hold her up as, mm-hmm. some, as one of the unsung heroes of his career, right? Mm-hmm. You, one does wonder how different the legacy of Twain would be if it weren't for, you know, not just Livy, who brings him into the family. Certainly, mm-hmm. you know, that's almost a, a given, right, that somebody's spouse is going to have a massive effect upon their, yeah. <laughs> their life, right? But that her, her sister-in-law builds the study, right? right? Mm-hmm. Make sure there's always a space for here is somebody who, who Twain always turns to in a time of crisis, mm-hmm. right? And I think that mm-hmm. it, I do really wonder how different Twain's work would be. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, just the pure production would be mm-hmm. yeah. if it hadn't been for for Susan Crane. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and the, like the selflessness. Of, uh, yeah. And I'm gonna botch the quote, but it's uh, you know, in I think he wrote it for in the Elmira Star Gazette at the end. But it's like if, you know, it, upon her death, he's like you know, if there is a heaven. She probably won't be there. She'll be in hell comforting all the poor devils. Down there. <laughs> <laughs> so until his last days, you know, held her in the highest respect. Um, yeah. So that's, you know, that's who I feel in this house. Yeah. And I think yeah. uh, even if they don't, the scholars don't know it, that's what they're picking up on. Yeah. <laughs> I <think>. And I tell them. <laughs> and I know we're waxing romantic about Susan Crane, yeah. but like another story that kind of is amazing is about Ernest Kepi. Right, yeah. like, uh, so Susan Crane is in Europe, and then just for some reason sees a German waiter, and she just says, you know, I kind of like, I like how you're doing things. If you ever want a job, right, come back mm-hmm. to Quarry Farm. And so what? He shows up like six months later. Yeah, just about a, maybe a year later. Yeah. She, you know, she shows up, and he is the longest uh, resident at Quarry Farm. Yeah, he stays stays sixty years. Sixty, yeah, over sixty years. <laughs> he was pa- after Susan passed, he stayed. You yeah. know. And, yeah. Just a talented uh, farmer, uh, could grow things here that don't grow here. Um, he spoke like seven languages. He could entertain at parties and then go out and be the, which I can do, I cannot, I'm not a farmer. Yeah. You know? <laughs> I'm going to break his record. <laughs> but he's still more valuable. For sure. <laughs> Steve is alluding to the fact that, the, you know, the fact that Jervis Langdon left in that four-party agreement that designation that there must always be a caretaker mm-hmm. at Quarry Farm, which Steve now is. I'd like to point I, out, Matt, it's caretaker and wife. Oh. Yeah, <laughs> so, 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 so we're fudging that. We're fudging yeah, that yeah, part I mean, of I that. have a 13-year-old kid. 
<laughs> that spot exists in large part, I think, as a kind of testament to, to Kepi. Absolutely. Yeah. His, his legacy here was regarded with a great deal of esteem even as late as the 1980s. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. As I said, this is kind of our five-year anniversary. We all joined the staff at roughly the same time. And so maybe conclude our conversation today by asking, one, what is the thing you're most proud of about what we've accomplished over these five years? And also, what is the goal that you are most dedicated to in the near future? Wow. I remember us all getting together really early and being kind of very excited and intimidated by the potential of what the Center for Mark Twain Studies could be. I think one thing that I'm proud of is that we're on the process of really getting closer to really what we can be. And I think we're growing. The website's helping out. The competition for fellowships is definitely increasing quality. The secondary resource library is definitely getting much better. We're getting our act together when it comes to the preservation of the house. So I think the whole system is starting to kind of click together as opposed to maybe not pointing out one thing. Yeah. 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 I think that's fair. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I was here a little before you guys, and, and so most of this is attributed to you guys. When I started, it was a, it was definitely a very insider's club. Like my first two years, I saw the same scholars each time. And I mean this with all due respect because I love them all. They're super nice people, but it, it almost seemed like they were reserving it for a vacation spot. Mm-hmm. They were in the know, and they're like, I'll take it the second weekend of August, and we'll get out of the city, and it'll be great. <laughs> and since you guys have gotten it going and made it a nationwide thing with the website, and it's been you know, constant new faces and new ideas, and um, I think that's been amazing. For me personally, as caretaker, I just, you know, my pace is the tortoise as far as the tortoise and the hare goes, you know, (laughs) slow and steady. But I just try to improve something each year. I just try to, like, step up, you know, whether it be landscaping or care for the house or some sort of restoration, just improve something each year, especially in the summer months, like uh, move it forward. And you guys have helped me and inspire me in that because you guys have moved it way forward from when, you know, the pace it was started at when I first started. It also needs to be totally pointed out that we are really standing on the shoulder of giants because previous directors, specifically Gretchen Charlo and Barbara Snedeker, they not only set up the financial situation, but, you know, have, have done a whole bunch of, um, of, of work beforehand so we, I think, in a lot of ways, were getting given a kind of a clean slate to say, just go forth and do it. There was absolutely zero hang-up baggage when I took over. It was just kind of, just go forward. Yeah. And that is really to their credit. I, I agree. And I, I would add to that, I, I utterly agree. We've also benefited from a, a new administration at Elmira College who saw what we wanted to do with the center and didn't push back in any way, but rather has has over and over again encouraged us to 
to trust our instincts, to do things like expand the number of people coming up here, to get a historic structures report, even acknowledging that those things might be expensive or risky in various ways. We've given a, been given a kind of autonomy that I think previous directors and, and previous staffs didn't necessarily have. That's, that, that's, that's extremely true. <laughs> that is very, very, very true. Um, and we, like I've said, we've been, in fact, given maybe a, an independence, which is scary at times, but uh, allows us to kind of take chances. That's definitely paid off. I do want to say, like, uh, I was here when Barb Snedeker, she was my first boss here, and I, she's one of my favorite people of all time. Like, she's so thoughtful, smart, thorough, and sensitive to the people she works with, and she also is the one who tapped Joe Lamac on the shoulder to, mm-hmm. to get yeah. the gig, which... Yeah. Yeah. So I'm super thankful for her. She was a great, a no, great she, boss. I, mean, I, I think as a she whole, had a role in all of our hirings, obviously, yeah, yeah, yeah. and that was, you know, and also clearly, although she had struggled through periods of time with a lack of staffing, with maybe restrictions that shouldn't have been there, mm-hmm. so on and so forth, right? She's clearly foresaw the potential, right? Mm-hmm. And, and as Joe said, left us with a kind of clean slate. Yeah, yeah, and a, a clean slate except for the enormous goodwill that she created (laughs) with a lot of scholars and donors and other people. And Matt, that really cannot be underestimated. All the time, we we benefit from the goodwill and just the the grace that that Mm -hmm. Barb Snedeker fostered for us. Yeah, absolutely. That was Joe Lamack, director of the Center for Mark Twain Studies, and Steve Webb, caretaker at Quarry Farm. I'm Matt Siebel. Very soon, we'll be launching the second season of the American Vandal podcast with an episode focused on the myths of Reconstruction in the context of recent events at the Capitol. After that, we'll be bringing you episodes on a hit TV show that was temporarily titled Project Huckleberry, on pandemics and other public health challenges in the 19th century, and on recent books about Mark Twain. So subscribe via your preferred podcast platform. Thank you for listening.